You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week five, the overview of the law found in Deuteronomy 12 through 26. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Good morning, and welcome to the Law Overview. And what may sound very boring at the outset, I hope that you will find rich and meaningful by the time that we're done here. And just to forewarn you, I am not gonna answer all your questions today. We have a total of four weeks in the law, and we did this intentionally. So settle in, okay? We're gonna be talking about this for weeks to come. I have two simple goals for our time together. The first one is to give you framework and practical tools for how to engage with this type of scripture, particularly on this side of the cross. And the second one is to provide you with a big picture vision as to why this law is a treasure. So first of all, uh, your homework these next three weeks looks a little different. We're gonna study the law topically using the 10 commandments as a guide. So remember the 10 commandments summarize the law, which means that somehow all of these other laws in Deuteronomy are extensions of the 10 commandments. So each week we're gonna focus on a few of the 10, and then your homework will be to look at specific passages from Deuteronomy that fit under those topics. There's still observation and interpretation questions are just mixed together. And then the big picture wrap-up looks a little different too. We're gonna get you thinking about how does this law glorify God? How does this law benefit us or the community? And if you're like, oh, I was just getting into a good groove with this homework, uh, don't worry, it's coming back. The format will return. But we determined that changing the format for these next few chapters um, would be most beneficial to you in the long run. That's literally why we did it, because we wanted you to leave this study with a better understanding of the law and hopefully, Lord willing, a greater appreciation for it too. So that being said, um, we didn't wanna skip over big portions of the text because of this type of framework. Um, So which is why we had you read the whole thing this past week. Take it all in, get the big picture. And now we're gonna go back over it and just study a little slower, okay? So I promised you some framework, so let's start there. Um, Turn to the chart on page 40. This is like opposite of your teaching notes page. Should look familiar. We had a similar one um, before in the homework. So to review, commandments one to four deal with that vertical relationship between God and us. Commandments five through 10, the horizontal relationships between us and others. And then of course you have the two greatest commandments over those categories, right? Love the Lord your God with your whole being, love your neighbor as yourself. But did you also realize there is some parallelism between those two categories? Now I first learned of this sitting under Corey's teaching in ABF, so we are using his structure to aid our study today. 
Um, there are four headings in that chart. You see them, it says honor, blank. I'm gonna give you a word bank, all right? Can you figure out which blanks those words go in? Some are a little trickier than others. So what about the first one? Over commandments one and five. Any ideas? Honor, authority, right. No other gods before me and honor your parents. That's a pretty easy one. The second one's a little trickier. What do you think that one is? Honor, no, belongings. Okay, no graven images. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. And the next one? Names, right, honor names. Do not misuse the name of the Lord and do not bear false witness. And then lastly, we have honor rights. Observe the Sabbath and do not covet. Okay, good. Now I'm guessing that probably doesn't make a lot of sense to you right now. And that's okay. I don't expect it to. I'm gonna do that annoying teacher thing and not explain it a lot further now because we're going to be digging into this over the next three weeks, okay? The, the homework and the teachings are gonna go through this. And then below that chart, you see another one that we're gonna fill in together. This is what is the principle or heart behind these commandments? And these uh, principles that we're using were taken from Jen Wilkins' book, 10 Words to Live By. So, first of all, the command, uh, no other gods before me. This is the principle of undivided allegiance. Undivided allegiance. Whole being devotion and worship of the one true God. The second commandment, you shall have no graven images, is the principle of undiminished worship. It's God who says how he is to be worshiped. Any image that we would construct of him would be less than all that he is. The third, do not misuse the name of the Lord, is the principle of untarnished name. Untarnished name, this is a right representation of who he is. Number four, observe the Sabbath is unhindered rest. Rest that restores and reorients us to the Lord. Number five, um, honor your parents. This is the principle of honoring elders. Respect and or care for those above you. Number six, do not murder, is honor life. Value and protect life in practice and attitude. Number seven, do not commit adultery, is honor marriage. Value and protect marriages and their integrity, and in addition, flee all types of sexual immorality. Number eight, do not steal, is honor property. Value others by protecting their belongings and their interests. Number nine, do not bear false witness, is honor reputation. Value and protect others by true and just representation. And then lastly, do not covet, is to honor in the heart. 
Value and protect others by curbing your own sinful desires. Okay, I know that's a lot right now. We just had to get that stuff filled out. But we wanted you to have this for your homework so you can refer back to it. Ask the Lord to give you understanding as we go through these chapters. Okay, time for some straight talk. So I think one of the biggest questions when it comes to the Old Testament law is, why should I care? Right, I'm saved by Christ, and this seems to have no relevance to me whatsoever. Maybe it even turns you off. And it's a good, honest question. You're allowed to ask. But I have a better angle that I'd like to offer you. You see, if we determine the worth of something based solely on its perceived relevance to us, it's a faulty metric because it's placing us at the center. It's like we're the standard. But instead, if God is the center of this narrative, then it is better to ask, what am I not understanding? Or what do I, how do I need to conform to your perspective of the law? And I'm gonna start by reminding us of the story in which we find ourselves because it undoubtedly informs our understanding of the law and I think you will find that it is indeed still relevant. The glory of Eden was that God and all of his creation were in right relationship, the way things were designed to be. And though the law of God as we know it right now was unspoken at that time, I would argue that it was just a part of the fabric of life because there was no sin. So that means everything was operating in accordance to God's righteousness. When Adam and Eve sinned, humanity was plunged into unrighteousness. And now everything is broken, right? Our relationships with one another, with creation, and most importantly, with God himself. Every single human has since been born with the moral cancer of sin. And it is terminal. But God had a plan to redeem us even before we fell. And so Jesus came and lived the life that we could not, and he died the death we deserved. But what I want you to see, however, is this is about so much more than just you and me. Your ransomed life is precious to God, hear me. But it is a tiny fraction of the cosmic restoration that God is doing to creation. He is after all of it, all of his people, all of creation for all of his purposes. And that restoration requires a complete purification from sin. The cancer must be completely destroyed for God to again dwell with his people. So you may look longingly back at Eden, certainly better than what we have now, but what you really want is the new heavens and the new earth. When Christ returns and defeats his enemies, devoting them to destruction and purging the evil from the land, then once again, righteousness will reign. And with no threat of sin, God's law will be perfectly upheld. It will again just be a part of the fabric of life the way that God intended things to be. Now, obviously, the Israelites could not have understood all of that. 
Yet still, Moses is pleading with these people, keep the law, keep the words close to you. The psalmist is delighting in the law. The prophets are calling the people back over and over, come back. This is what it looks like to be faithful to God. So how did the Old Testament saints understand the law? We might view a long list of rules as oppressive, but this law from Yahweh was an extension of grace. The law reveals the heart of the law giver. And this lawgiver has set his love upon a people. He's claimed them for his treasured possession. He has bound himself to them in covenant. What other nation has a God like this? In contrast, the pagan nations around them have a pantheon of gods and they spend their days um, trying to incur the favor of these gods and to avoid their wrath. And it's all in complete ambiguity. But Yahweh, he speaks. No cat and mouse games. A clear revelation of what it means to be in relationship with him. He was preparing his people to dwell with them, with him. And that's another step in this cosmic restoration that he is doing. And you better believe that if the Shekinah glory of Yahweh comes to rest in the midst of the camp, in the midst of the sinful people, it's going to change everything. I mean, imagine if a lion just walked through those doors right now. Would that not change everything about your existence as long as you were near its presence? You couldn't possibly ignore it. And for this holy presence to be among the people, purification was required. Quite literally, we have these standards of clean and unclean practices. Now, not everything called unclean is explicitly sinful, but these laws exist to push back the effects of sin, to restrict illness and disease and death. And why? It's because God's presence brings life. His presence is also morally purifying. You know how humans respond to visions of God's glory, right? They're just laid out flat, overwhelmed by their sin. God's holy presence exposes sin for what it truly is. And this is not a 10-day virus. This is a terminal cancer. And what if cancer was contagious? What if cancer was contagious? Would you not follow all the rules to preserve life? Why would we want contact with that which would destroy us? Purge the evil from among you because the very things that promise life and pleasure are actually driving you away from the true source of life and pleasure. And so this law is not just rules to follow, but it is a gracious invitation into a life of flourishing with their God. It's the way of wisdom. It's teaching the people how to live rightly oriented to God and to one another. This cosmic restoration of righteousness begins with God's people. 
Now, when we talk about the law and God's design, there's an elephant in the room. I don't know if you've noticed it, but it's the issue of authority. I mentioned this briefly last time, but for laws to work, there must be an authority structure and there must be communal submission. Sometimes when I'm driving, I think, wow, it is amazing that we can get this many people to agree about traffic laws. Did you ever think about that? It's kind of terrifying if you think of it while you're driving because you're like, man, I hope that person coming towards me just doesn't all of a sudden feel like driving in the left lane today. Like, doesn't feel like following the rules. And it's really no different here. For creation to operate according to God's design requires that he rule over us, creator king, and that we submit. And I'm guessing even that simple statement may just kind of have some friction in you. Maybe it's your experience with human authority. Maybe that has tainted your view. That's okay, I get it. But fundamentally, every single one of us has this issue because the sinful heart wants to be in charge. This is the terminal cancer that infects all of us. And so just like in the garden, our pride makes us suspicious of God. Did you feel that while you read the law? It self-elevates, it self-preserves. I'll call the shots, I'll look out for myself, thank you very much. I can't, can't depend on this guy to look out for me. Yet we will never experience the flourishing life of God out from under his authority. Life in his kingdom requires humility and submission, and this is actually for your good. If it sounds scary to entrust yourself to the God of the universe, my advice is this. Get to know him. This is why we talk so much about this at WBF. Get to know him. Seek him in the scriptures. Bring him your questions and your doubts. Ask the spirit to renew your mind. Let the church come alongside of you. You don't have to be afraid of what you will find because the authority of God is not oppressive. It is protective and it is life-giving for those in under it. So let's rejoin the Israelites back on the plains of Moab now. Beginning in Deuteronomy 12, Moses speaks the law to the people. And this isn't the entire law, right? You can find it all throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But this selection deals a lot with aspects of worship and communal life. And this makes sense if you'll remember because one of the themes of this book is the redeemed community. What does it look like to live as God's people with him? These are not new laws, but a retelling to this new generation. And as we've learned in the opening chapters, it will be vitally important for them to integrate these words into every aspect of their life because that's what's gonna guard them from sin and idolatry and fuel faithful obedience to God. But don't forget the big picture. This is about so much more than just Israel following the rules. God's covenantal relationship, his dwelling among them, his law to restore a righteous society, these are the building blocks of this cosmic restoration. He is on a mission to bring salvation to the entire world. And it begins here with the birth of a nation. 
Now here's the thing. The establishment of a nation requires some laws that are particular to their context and their time in history. And so as we look back, I think it can be helpful to have some categories for understanding these different types of laws. And so I offer you these three classifications. The first one is civil. These are laws pertaining to governing the people and upholding justice. There were a lot of these in Deuteronomy, okay? All of those procedures and penalties for disobedience, civil laws for the nation. The second is ceremonial. These are laws pertaining to the aspects of worship at that time, okay? So you have the priesthood, tabernacle, eventually the temple, the sacrificial system, ceremonial cleanliness, all that sort of stuff. And these are largely concentrated in Leviticus. And then the third is moral. This is kind of what we talk about, right relations with God and others. And this is really what the 10 Commandments summarize. And then that just undergirds the rest of the law. Now there can be some overlap in these categories and the Israelites would not have thought of them so concretely. But hopefully that's a helpful framework. And we will come back to these um, when we talk about the new covenant in a bit. But regardless of the type of law, remember, its purpose remains the same. is to build a righteous society among the people of God. Should they only obey? And we already know they won't be able to. So when we talk about the law on this side of the cross, we so quickly jump to Christ, right? Like he's our only hope for righteousness. But in Deuteronomy, we're still at the very beginning of the story. How many people will live and die between Exodus and Matthew? And how many people will live and die under a covenant that they can't possibly keep? It can seem kind of futile, like they're just being set up for failure. Why would God do things this way? And I think it's because God not only wanted to tell us the truth, but to show us the truth. What he revealed in the law at Mount Sinai played itself out for generation after generation in his people. And this can be understood by looking at what theologians call the threefold use of the law. The first is that it reveals God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. As I said, the character of the lawgiver is revealed in the law. But then this law also serves as a mirror for us. We see the startling contrast between God's righteousness and our lack. This informs us of our greatest need. So for the Old Testament, they looked forward to the promises of God that would one day be fulfilled. They knew a Messiah was coming. For us, we look back and we can glory in the gospel. The second is that it restrains evil. Even for those who do not acknowledge God, just the fact of there being an enforced law with penalties for wrongdoing, it curbs evil to some extent. Chris mentioned this in the introduction. We cannot underestimate the effect of Judeo-Christian law and values on our society. What we just take as like common moral sense is completely lacking in other countries that don't have that influence. 
The third is that it reveals what pleases the Lord. Again, we don't have to guess. God has laid out the way of wisdom, what it looks like to be properly oriented to him and others. Think of how the Old Testament stories show us these things over and over and over again. Who God is, who we are, our need for him, the evil of lawlessness and the way of wisdom. And as the story unfolds, despair grows. Because the more we understand these things, the more we realize how desperate our situation is. And the more we long for a promised deliverer. You can read it in the prophets. They foretold of a new covenant to come. Sin would be fully atoned for. The law would be internalized. We'll be given new hearts with the spirit actually able to obey. There was hope on the horizon, but they only saw in part what we now see clearly. Yet think of all that would be lost in our understanding and honestly in our appreciation for Christ if God had not written a long, slow story to show us these truths that his law tells us. All of the law and the prophets bear witness to this. So here we stand today, utterly secure in the new covenant of Christ's blood, praise God. He lived and died as our representative and so doing upheld our side of the old covenant. And so now as Hebrews says, he makes the first covenant obsolete. And Romans 10, four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul has some strong words to say about the law. Maybe you're familiar with some of these. But take a look at these verses from Galatians 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's a verse from Deuteronomy, by the way. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Also from Deuteronomy. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Guys, the law was never meant to save us. Galatians goes on to say, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Yet we are condemned by it because we can't keep it. Christ's substitutionary death absorbed that curse for us. And now we are justified by faith in Christ Jesus and his righteousness alone. And did you catch the verse at the end? The covenant at Mount Sinai with Moses was conditional, right? Israel had to obey in order to enjoy the abundance of the Lord's presence. Even though they couldn't keep their end of the bargain, Christ was the provision from God to fulfill it. Plus, the previous covenant made to Abraham. That one was unconditional. God had promised to see it through. And he did, even despite Israel's failure in that link in the chain. Every word of the Lord can be trusted. 
And so we say yes and amen, right? And we echo Galatians 5. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Yet sometimes in doing that, we throw off all regard for the law. And you say to me, well, it's not about works, it's about grace. And Christianity isn't about rules, it's about relationship. How do we reconcile these things? What if I told you that both the old and the new covenants both contain aspects of rules and relationship? It's just that the terms are different. Remember the relationship aspect of Deuteronomy? There's a covenant of love between God and his people. Treasured possession, instructing them in righteousness so he can dwell with them. He wants to be with his people. And if you think faith in Christ is only relationship and has no bearing whatsoever on how you live, then you do not know the gospel. Just as Yahweh's presence in the Israelite camp changed everything about their existence, so the Spirit of God coming to dwell within you changes everything about your existence. We obey the rules not to earn anything, but because we already have everything in Christ. This is what sanctification is, that our desires are increasingly conformed to God's righteousness. We want to do that which pleases him. Jewish tradition boasts 613 laws in the Torah. That's a lot. But the New Testament has over a thousand. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God in your bodies. Freedom is not autonomy. Freedom is being joined to Christ because that's how we were designed to live. And so how do we honor the law on this side of the cross? How do we abide by the spirit though no longer condemned by its letter? And it begins with a right framework. It's what we're trying to do today. Understanding the who and the why behind the law. Ask the Lord to reveal himself and to help you see, to help you understand. Secondly, look for the principles of the law. Many of these are timeless truths. They reveal God's character, what pleases him, and we learn a whole lot about ourselves and the seriousness of sin. For negative commands, it can be helpful to identify the positive principle. So we were doing with the 10 commandments. So you shall not murder communicates that God values life. And there are many implications to that truth. Remember the eternal nature of the moral law. So the civil and the ceremonial laws have been fulfilled for their particular purpose and time in history. But the principles of those laws and the moral law they're based in the character of God, and that never changes. So you will find those same principles in the commands of the New Testament. And lastly, keep your eyes on eternity. God's kingdom is advancing. His cosmic restoration is still in process, and we are a part of that. 
We will one day dwell with him under Christ's righteous rule. So why not live like that today? Do you want to advance the kingdom of God? Then love God, love others, obey his commands. Do you want to do the will of the Lord? Then love God, love others, and obey his commands. Do you want to be more like Christ? Then love God, love others, and obey his commands. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let it be. Let's pray. Father, we come to you ever so aware of our lack. We have finite minds, we have finite understanding, and some of this is really hard. And so God, I just pray for each heart represented in the women here. Would you grant us a deep humility that we would come to you asking questions instead of defensive? And Spirit, I pray that you would guide us into truth. Help us to see, help us to understand your heart. And I praise you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the utmost security that we have in him. But I also pray that, that we would have a right awareness of that freedom, that it's not just to cast off all restraint, but to live joyfully in line with you because everything in this creation is coming in under your authority. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so we wanna do that today. We wanna do that now. And we wanna be a part of this restoration as we look forward to one day seeing you face to face. So would you help us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.